Hi listeners, today's episode includes topics of racism and racial violence. While we approach these topics with great care, we wanted to advise our listeners who experience trauma related to this topic ahead of the episode. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Have you been watching any true crime documentaries or anything lately? You know, it's funny. I started watching Trial by Media on Netflix a few days ago. and Is it a Netflix documentary or just on Netflix? It's a... It's a Netflix documentary series, and it's, um, I believe oh. it's made in, I think George Clooney's involved in the production or creation of it. Um, I think it's eight episodes so far, and it's, so I had watched the first episode with Davey, my partner, uh, about a week ago, and it's, uh, the, it's the Jenny Jones crime. Do you remember that? The... The guy who went on Jenny Jones, no, and um, found out that oh, his oh, secret oh. crush and, like, was his, a man. His... Yes, yes, yeah. So they go over that whole uh, thing in more depth for the first episode, and then so what I'm gathering is that the whole series is about um, cases that that like media was hev- like heavily prevalent in the case. So like for this one, this was the first case where a a talk show was on on the stand. You know what I mean? Where, for yeah, it's. I'm gathering that all the episodes are going to be it. about that. The second, but the reason I'm, I'm think it's really funny is that I actually watched the second episode yesterday just to watch casually, you know, the next episode in the series, and it is the, it is literally the crime that we're doing in this episode that we're recording right now. Shut up! It is not. I swear on my life. <gasps> oh my god! What a weird coincidence. Yeah. So I went to go look at the episode yesterday to watch it, and I I saw what it was, and I was like not in the place to watch it because I wanted to pay t- extra attention to it. So I watched it today, and I just couldn't believe that literally episode two of Trial by Media is one of my sources today. <laughs> That's so bizarre. Yeah. Is, is it a is it a good series? So far, I like it. Um, I. It's like well produced and everything. Yeah, it's well produced. It's definitely given me more information on cases I've already known about. So that's kind of cool. And it doesn't seem to take so far any biased stance on either side. You know, how how the media affected it one way or the other. It's just like sort of reporting it and you make your own opinions. So what about what about you? Have you watched anything true crime related lately? It, this isn't it's not a documentary, but it's a series that is retelling the story of the exonerated five, the five young boys who oh. were arrested for the that woman's rape in Central Park. It's good. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but it's really good. This was the case where they were charged and none of them there was like no evidence really, right? Correct. Yeah, there was nothing linking any of them to the crime. But it was, um, what's her name? She was from Desperate Housewives, Felicity Huffman. She was like the chief investigator or whatever, and was just bound and determined to create this case against these five young boys for having committed this crime. And it, it's based on a true story, right? A hundred percent. Yes. And you, and it's, um, like the men who are exonerated of these crimes, like they're featured at the end of the documentary or uh, TV show. Okay. Speaking of watching things that are true crime related, how about this podcast, huh? How, how about it? How about it? <laughs> so 
for all of you listening out there, welcome to our podcast. This is Ripped from the Headlines. And as we already introduced ourselves, that's Matt. I'm N. And what do we call our podcast, Matt? Ripped from the Headlines. <laughs> I meant like, how would you describe it? Ripped from the Headlines. <laughs> oh, God. Did you see oh, that? I would um, say that like what? Instagram video that was making the rounds of like me and my friends at brunch once quarantine is over and it's um this man who's like hey what what are uh uh Saturdays for and his friend who is like clearly full blackout turns around and goes Saturdays are for Saturdays and then his friend goes no like Saturdays <laughs> what are Saturdays for and he goes Saturday <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> no. No, How long did I'm that not, story take me to tell? I feel like it took me a long time to tell that oh. story. It was like 90 seconds. Don't be so okay, hard great. on yourself, I think. Um, okay. But anyway, in addition to saying our, the title of our podcast, um, I would describe it as a fact and fiction-based podcast that takes a look at law and order and the true crimes that have inspired the show. That's right. And we're going to, you know, every episode... You can expect one of us to be primarily taking on an episode of Law and Order, and the other would be covering the true crime that has inspired the case. That's um, right. So this episode would be, we're still in season one, and we are in episode two. That's right. Um, <laughs> this episode, I'm going to be doing the recap of the Law and Order episode. This episode is called Subterranean Homeboy Blues, uh, which I don't even... You know, you get the reference, right? No. Oh, it's a song. So there's a song called Subterranean Homesick Blues. Oh, there is? Yeah, I think it's Bob Dylan. Um, what is it about, like, mole people who live under the ground? <laughs> N- no. Oh, my God. I absolutely knew that song. My dad loves that song. Yeah. So I, I heard it many, yeah. many, many times as a child. It's very popular. Uh, interesting. Anyway, why are we talking about Bob Dylan? Oh, because of the because title. The title it's of a the parody. Episode. Got it. Yeah. Here we are. And the episode opens on really great f- stock. The footage. Okay. I know the show is only 30 years old, but I feel like I'm looking at a total of 10 pixels when I'm watching the show. Like, it's so, like, not refined footage. It looks so incredibly dated. It's very gritty. It's very gritty. It's so gritty. Maybe that's intentional to have, like, a gritty footage for the gritty TV show. Doesn't matter. I think part of it was, but... mm. Okay. So this episode opens in the subway, and... It opens on Cynthia Nixon from Sex and the City. Icon. Icon. And she has got blonde hair. It's much, much paler than she had in Sex and the City. And the most ferociously curled bangs I've ever seen in my life. Like, this is a true, like, parabolic arc that these bangs do. There's probably, like, a solid four inches. She could probably stick her hand sideways between her bangs and her forehead and not touch the hair. She could absolutely coil a slinky 
within those bangs. A hundred percent, yes. So there's this weird moment where it like cuts to like a a close up of the bag she's carrying, and it's this like big pink uh, bag from like a dance studio, and we see the hand of a black man try to grab her bag, and she just like slaps his hand away, and then walks to another train. We see some really incredible early 90s uh, iconic moments like a man carrying a boombox on the shoulder in the subway and some really incredible like big puffer jacket vests that are really are actually I think back today. Two black men enter the same subway cabin as her and we like see them walk toward her and then from another train we hear gunfire and people screaming and then the police show up and see the bodies of two young black men. And it just goes to the the theme song at that point. In my notes, in my notes, I said to myself, I, I, t- I didn't say it. I typed it to myself. The theme song for this show sounds like uh, like porn music. It It does a little bit. Oh, my God. It sounds so incredibly late 80s. It really does. Um, there's like this like clinging sound. It sounds like there's a there's an aftershock sound, this tinny aftershock sound on every note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not a woodwind instrument, which there are plenty of. Let's really go into the instrumentation behind the theme song. I think that's what people are probably <laughs> here for. Why not? So Grevy and Logan are walking on the street and they head down into the subway. And there's this just, I mean, stellar writing. Uh, so the police say, how's this one? And uh, he says, you know, good or whatever. And he says, doesn't look so good to me. And the paramedic says, you're right. He'd look better dead. One less jerk with a screwdriver. Oh, my God. Which, yeah. So as I expected <laughs> with the show, we were going to see a lot of really blatant racism um but i was so confused by the screwdriver part of that line until later in the episode because we understand it's like apparently the screwdriver was the threatening weapon or whatever that he was holding right there's no other reference to that that i'm missing is there no no okay good the police ask a woman who was there who saw the shooting he says did you get a look at him and she goes her and uh grievy his eyes grow up into his hairline because apparently it is like inconceivable that a woman would have uh been the shooter at this moment oh my god and the the way she reveals it you did it perfectly her yeah it was was a lot um so, and then she, he asks what she looked like, and, and she says, she looked like a ballerina. I would have been like, that is not an accurate description, ma'am. Insufficient. Uh, like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Then it cuts to Logan, who is swiping his pen through one of the blood spatters on the ground and says, talk about your nutcracker. And I have so many problems with this. Number one, this came out in 1990, so we had discovered DNA. I mean, I guess not that they needed to, like, do DNA tracing or whatever, because he was clearly a gunshot victim. Uh, But something tells me, even in 1990, swiping your pen through one of the, like, puddles of blood at the crime scene, just as they're taking away one of the bodies, or one of the the men to get them to the hospital, that just... It's 
There's something against pr- protocol there. Something. Something. Just I maybe mean... one of those things. <laughs> and also the, the nutcracker. Okay, who are on... I, I'm deeply disturbed at the idea that, like, police show up to scenes like this and start making jokes about people. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen. I, I really hope that doesn't happen. I really hope so, too. I'm sure it does all the time. So then we cut to St. Jude's Hospital, and Grievy and Logan are there interrogating the shooting victim. Like, they're being so antagonistic toward him, and, like, why'd she shoot you? And as though, you know, again, they're, like, placing responsibility for this on the the two black men who were shot. And he's like, I don't know, she must have gone crazy. Um, and apparently, and then he says, my friend asked her for an apple, and she shot him. And Grievy says, asked or demanded? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that part. But he was just, like, sitting there. He doesn't, he's like, why did, you know, why did I get shot? I was just sitting there. And then he says he's telling the truth and he's got a good chance of proving it, um, which I'm assuming is, like, my friend will back up my exact story. And then we shift to the surgery room. uh, But the footage, again, we get a moment of some really incredible stock footage like this was really really um just close-ups of tubes and and red liquid on gloves and like it it really in no way looked like it was filmed as part of the show so i i think we're being made to believe like oh no but maybe his friend can't back up his story because he's gonna die who knows the scene then cuts back to the precinct, and apparently they've been getting phone calls of people claiming to be the, quote, avenging angel, which sounds like what the news is calling this woman. They're saying, um, you know, she was out there doing good, ridding right. the world of um, of of bad men, because the news headline literally says, says, babe to punks, drop dead. And I can't remember if it's Logan or Grevy. I think it's Logan who says, maybe we should deputize her. So we're getting a real feel of what uh, what the the mood is about this. Right. Like, who cares? It was two black men who were shot. Like, that's great. They're cleaning up the streets. This woman, you know, would clear is clearly must be in the right. Who how else could she have conceived of doing this? It's as though these men have never heard of racism in their lives. So they're laying either they're really trying to lay on this very, very heavy like racial overtones storyline or this show is like so much more tone deaf than I even imagined it was back then. Cause I feel like they're laying it on really, really heavy that many of the people in the scene intentionally have these sorts of like racist influence of, you know, impacting their judgment or their opinions of this situation. I would say it's a little bit of the latter. Like I think it's a little bit tone deaf in its approach, but I think I would uh, reserve some of your uh, opinions until you hear the actual true crime because it's pretty oh, shocking. God. Okay, I can't wait. Yeah. All right. So, and then Creepy and Logan get into an argument that, again, I'm I'm thinking is intended to show that one of them, I think this is probably going to be a common plot line in the show, is like one of the officers has this opinion and the other one has that opinion. And then that influences how they respond to the case. Uh, right. I think that's going to be a very, very common thing that they do. So uh, Logan is, I think, sort of meant to be on the the young woman's side, the shooter who is, you know, he's like, she's doing, she's justified or whatever. And Creevy is 
on the other side of the things, not necessarily pointing out any of the like racism in this, but he's like, if we let her get away with this, it tells everybody else in New York, you can carry a weapon and shoot it on the subway and you're going to get away with it. That seems to be his primary concern. Then the episode cuts to the set of Olivia Newton-John's music video physical. (laughs) (laughs) Because Creevy and Logan have shown up at the dance studio that was shown on the bag. Did you put your hands up on either oh. side of your face when you said mm-hmm. dance? I, my hands have been so, they were, I did so many hand gestures when I was doing my Olivia Newton-John line. Oh my I knew God, that one was going to get you. Okay. Yes. The outfits and the feathered hair and the like m- quasi mullet haircuts that all of these women have. They're so teased. There's so much hairspray. Yes. Out of control. Out of control. They are also wearing like like, frosted blue eyeshadow to their dance classes. So uh, it's it's quite a look. Okay. So they're, they say they're trying to track down the shooter and get her address, but they, they strike out. And then we outside Logan is on a a phone booth yelling and screaming about how he'll get a warrant and you listen to me. And then Grievy takes the phone and sweet talks the phone operator so that they can get the address of this woman and track her down. And then a nosy old neighbor lady gives them info on where they work. And suddenly we get a scene of them like at the hospital that this woman works at and they're trying to find her and they track her down to a radiology lab. And then it's like, uh, again, one of those medical scenes where she's just like, touching somebody on the wrist like gently holding their wrist and neither of them are speaking or anything is happening and she's standing in front of like (laughs) x-ray results but it's it's meant to tell us she's she's at work in the hospital yes and then uh they bring her down to the station and she's explaining that she felt threatened and she had to defend herself and they ask her why she ran and she's saying well i freaked out and i had to get away and they ask where she got the gun and she says somebody gave it to me i don't know who And so they think it's probably unlicensed. She says she dropped it down in the subway. And they say, you know, do you need to call your lawyer? And she's like, I can't afford one. And I don't need to. I didn't do anything wrong. So Logan and Grievy are out in the hallway. And Logan is like, why are we hassling her about this? She's not Squeaky From. From? Yeah. And she was, Squeaky From was one of the Manson girls, right? Yeah, she's, um, I wish I knew more about her. The only thing I know about her is that She's like one of the most popular, one of the most famous like ones by name. Right. Yes, I definitely know the name. Oh, yeah. She was a member of the Manson family. Also, I was like, was her name really squeaky? But her name was Lynette Alice. Uh, you know, it was that time. Yeah, she wasn't. Interestingly, she wasn't involved in the Tate LaBianca murders, but she attempted to assassinate Gerald Ford. Well, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes, that's why I know her. Okay, um, but Grievy is uh, is saying, listen, uh, you know, one guy didn't have a record and the other guy was sitting down when she shot him. And Logan says, oh, yeah, he's such an innocent looking guy, Max. And Grievy says, what kind of, you know, basically like what kind of police officer are you? Like what you're under arrest for looking guilty? Logan or Grievy says, if you think like that, you can't do this job. When it comes to the law, everybody's the same. So... I like Grievy's principle in that of like, you can't have these sorts of biases and do this kind of job. 
Yes. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the world works that way. I think we have a lot more folks like Logan than we do Grievy. Yeah, I think it's really unfortunate. But at least we're seeing both sides represented. Yes, I agree. And then it, uh, they kind of leave the, the captain's office and Grievy starts taking some aspirin and doing the worst I have a headache acting I've ever seen. Like, you know, oh. like awful, like awful furrowed brow and then like several taps of the hand on the forehead like here's where yeah. it hurts <laughs> like the, i probably like if this was a be... commercial the um the screen would turn to black and white and then a red pulsing like yes would, would radiate out right from, at the yep, temples mm-hmm. yeah yes and they'd say if you were a friend one friend or lo- what did i just say <laughs> forget that joke because apparently i can't even get it out of my mouth <laughs> so he gets a phone call and it's one of those like, wait, slow down. I can't understand you. And he says, just tell me what happened, honey. And apparently uh, his daughter, I guess Eileen, got uh, roughed up at school and uh, is kind of like bruised up and hurt. And apparently it was three guys from her basketball team who threw her up against a locker. Logan says, I wonder if Chanel, Chanel I don't know how to pronounce his last name, and Jones, the two men who were shot, were any good. And Grievy says, at what? And Logan says, basketball. So I think this entire scene is like racially coded, like these three boys who assaulted his daughter that day, their basketball players were meant to think that they're black. And this is going to be changing his attitude in relation to this case, which we kind of do end up seeing. Yeah. So then we cut to the police station and there is, uh, you know, a, a, an extras moment where she thinks this is my breakout scene. So I'm going to dial it up. And it's this close up on an old woman. And she says, don't touch me with that thing. (laughs) And then we're just like right past her onto Cynthia Nixon again. But man, that extra, she was give, she was delivering. She thought, you know, at the, you know, I'm I'm just gonna really wow the the uh, director, and I'm gonna get a lot of parts from this point she, on. She just thought, you know what? This is my moment. I've waited my whole life for this, and I'm not a moment. Gonna, like I'm this. not gonna miss it. She really looked like the if you if you took an actress who played a psychic on a soap on a daily soap opera, <laughs> and then had. Yzma's makeup artist from Emperor's New Groove do her makeup, that would be what this woman looked like. I'm picturing uh, Tabitha from the daytime soap Passions with that makeup now, and I'm living for it. Okay, Cynthia Nixon, uh, why is my lawyer not here yet? And they tell her that uh, she's going to be charged with negligent homicide. And she starts to kind of cry. And then a woman walks in, and her name is uh, Shambhala Green. Her The actress's name is Lorraine Toussaint. And her. she says, you love her? Yes. Yeah. She's great. And she says, why is this woman handcuffed? I'm her attorney from Legal Aid. So she's the uh, public defender. And then Grievy, being a dick, hands tissues to uh, Shambhala Green and says, here, do something useful and like hand tissues to your client. Okay, then we're with the ADA and they're talking about how they're going to have to be careful with what charges they present because so we've had the law side. Now we're at the order side and they're talking about how they'll be have to be careful of charges because 
of like perception of racism in the uh, trial of this woman. ADA uh, Robinette is then interviewing the the man who got shot but is alive, and um, he says that his friend just tried to like scare her with a screwdriver. He wasn't um, trying to hurt her or whatever, and he kind of like talks back to the ADA, and the ADA says, "Lighten up the tude." <laughs> <laughs> I, that was such a 90s moment. Like, it was like Bart Simpson had written that line for him. (laughs) Don't have a cow, man. Don't have a cow, man. Lighten up on the tude. Oh, totally. And Cheneau, I think, I'm just going to say Cheneau for his last name. Um, The man who was shot and is alive. He says, whose side are you on anyway? And ADA Robinette says, nobody's. I want the truth. And um, Cheneau says that they had screwdrivers. They were just going to go down to Grand Central Station and rob some lockers down there when she came in and sat down next to us. But then come to find out, uh, Cynthia Nixon, not the actress, but this character, uh, wrote an op-ed to the New York Herald saying that people should be allowed to carry concealed weapons uh, to protect themselves. And so they're thinking this implies premeditation. So they order her apartment searched, and Grievy discloses that they did end up finding a rep- record for the victim who was shot, um, Jones, I believe, because his name is actually Michael Mosket, a.k.a. Mosquito Mosquet, um, who had been charged oh, right. with attempted murder and negligent homicide. Also, I, I, I feel like they, there's, a lo- there's a moment <laughs> where they go to talk to his friend, and he says, Blah, 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 blah. My friend was just biting up on some lady. And I feel like the writer came up with that line first. And then they were like, then we can call him Mosquito Mosquet. And it's a reference to that line. And they thought they were so clever when it's just actually both of those are terrible. The nickname is terrible. And uh, that biting up on my biting up on some woman is a terrible line. I bet you it happened in the opposite order. And someone was like, oh. This we would be a cool up on. Easter egg moment for true fans <laughs> who are like really going to connect the dots. Yeah. So Captain Cragen is basically like, well, but all of that was related to gang activity. There was no sex involved. So this suddenly him being a, a, a rapist seems like, you know, not a trajectory, I guess, that you typically see. Um, and Grievy says like, well, I think he got what was coming to him. And ADA Robinette says... Justice isn't served in the subway. There's some really terrible writing on this show. <laughs> like for as long as the show was on TV, the fact that it has some of these lines. Like was TV just worse in the 90s? Like did they just not have... I'm going to tell you, it continues. It continues throughout. Like I still watch Law & Order SVU currently. And you're still going to get these like one-liners. Like you know how uh, on like a show like Buffy... It's it's the type of show that lends itself to these one-liners and these like yes. self-referential moments and th- things like that because it it's a, a good show but it doesn't take itself seriously in that way. Yeah, no, it's having fun with itself for sure. Right. This is not that show, but they still do that throughout. And I think at this point they're like they're like uh, laughing with us rather than you know us. We're laughing with them at this point, but yes. it doesn't stop. It, it the tone shifts a little bit about it, but it it. These, like, they love to end a scene with one of those that love oh, a yeah. slow fade off of a scene they, after they one of those lines. They absolutely love that. 
like if if there's an episode in the future where somebody dies in like a walk-in freezer at a grocery store or they work at an ice cream parlor, I fully expect there will be a line about revenge and a dish best served cold. Like there, <laughs> if they pass things, like I, they will not pass things like that up. That's absolutely this level of writing. There will definitely be an episode about a uh, a teenage girl who is diving. Uh, she's a professional diver and for her like at her high school and like she just got a scholarship all set up and everything but she gets addicted to some kind of drug because of it and it's going to be called in too deep oh my god that's the episode name. we should start writing the we should start writing the new episodes of this show let's <laughs> reboot really law and order and we'll be the new writers a friend of mine from from back east when we used to work together we used to spend our downtime um verbally uh constructing lifetime movies so i have to be honest in too deep was one that we created about a, a, a 17 year old diver and it was going to be called like in it was that we had a whole story about it, what it was going to be and then we called it in too deep one of your pastimes was writing movies for lifetime I'm saying verb, like we just would say them out loud. Like we would construct the whole thing out loud. We did not write them down. Like this you workshop like stories and just like said exactly. them to each other. Yes, yes. And but we would make the whole story. We would make a point. How old? To, to begin how old were you? Oh, this was when I was working at uh, Starbucks back east. So I was like in my early 20s, I guess. Okay. I don't know why I pictured like 13. Oh, no. And I was going to be I like. I I could oh. say. No. They were very well constructed. I'll have to tell you about Daughters of Savannah one day. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think it's less sad that you did this like while you were at Starbucks. Like that's a fun way to like imagine yourself in a different er- different place than making coffee, right? So that's yes. less sad to me than like a 13-year-old doing it. Yes, it was it was uh two queer folk, one in the closet, one not uh, trying to survive <laughs> the awful environment of Starbucks with just the two of us there alone. Shout out to Will. Uh, oh anyway. my goodness. Okay, Back so to I'm going to summarize a little bit about sort of the, the logic behind the two cases, or the rather her defense. So uh, the public defender is basically implying that, you know, she's a woman who has the right to defend herself and the right to ride the subway without fear, and uh, the public defender is uh, getting a lot of uh, kind of flack from the public for implying that if she didn't feel safe, she shouldn't have been on the hu- on the subway. So the the DA basically feels like he needs more to uh, kind of make this case uh, persuasive that she had premeditated this. So ADA Robinette goes to her apartment and finds a couple of books about like shoot to kill and uh, you know uh, self defense for. Ballot, former ballerinas. Oh, um, yes. Then she, there's this weird thing where she's like, why don't you like me to DA, ADA Robinette, which if you've never seen the show, he's black. Mm-hmm. And she's like, why do you hate me? And he like doesn't give her an answer. And she, he goes to leave her apartment and she shouts, I would never shoot you. Like, I wouldn't shoot you. Um, Like it all became unreal. All I could feel was fear in that moment. I was terrified. It's not because they were black. It's because of who they were. And then she says, I couldn't make it stop. Wouldn't if you what if you were on a train and a bunch of rednecks started hassling you? Wouldn't you be afraid? And then she very, very loudly repeats, wouldn't you? Also some Mm. really great acting on her part. 
Also, while he was at her apartment, he found uh, practice, like target practice sheets of people's outlines. In the last, like the, sh- the shots are getting progressively better. And in the last one, all the bullets are in the 10 range in the, the center chest and also on the genital area, mm. which <laughs> I don't know. I feel a lot of feelings about this. And I'm really, oh boy, it, I did, like would just remembered that we also have a real case that we're about to talk to talk about with this. So we go back to the courtroom and, uh, you know, they're they're interrogating her. And then they do this weird thing where, like, they bring in some other black men to kind of, like, walk in and recreate the scene. And it's just this weird moment that's, like, I think meant to imply how threatened she was by these two black men. And then a public defender, like, asks to approach the bench and meet with the judge. And, or sorry, they uh, meet with him after... EADA Stone uh, basically feels like they are responsible to drop the charges if they don't think there's or if they think there's reasonable doubt. And he says there is reasonable doubt on this case. And so he asks the public defender to have the woman plead guilty to the uh, gun, gun charge and the reckless endangerment. And he yells at her and basically says, like, we have to do this or else everybody will start carrying a gun on the subway. And has this moment of like, it's not win or lose. We both get paid by the system to defend the people and let's have justice work the way it's supposed to. And then he gets them to agree to like a one year suspended sentence with probation and community service. So she doesn't get any jail time and they cut to the courthouse steps and uh, public defender Green is saying like, my client is happy justice was served. And ADA Robinette and EADA Stone are talking to each other, and ADA says, it's not a perfect world, but at least we did the right thing. And EDA says, uh, EADA says, really, all it seems to like to me is we made a wrong thing seem right. And that's the end of the episode. I have so many feelings just about the episode that I feel like I'm going to be even more potentially outraged when we talk about the real crime. So I think you should just get into that. Oh, you're not even gonna, you're really not even going to believe it. You it's it's pretty it's out of control and there are a lot of parallels between the episode, like tons and tons and tons of things that are alluded to and borrowed from, but okay. a lot of things are different, so you will see. Get into it, people. So, this episode is heavily based on the 1984 subway shootings in New York City. It's a really famous case i remember hearing about it but i don't i didn't know all of this um about it at all so on december 22nd in 1984 in new york city uh reports come through of a shooting on a moving subway car of the number two train in new york city uh, have you ever been on a subway by the way and i have yeah i've been to chicago and new york so i've been on a couple subways. Atlanta? Okay, does Atlanta good. have subway? Anyway, it doesn't matter. I've never been to Atlanta. But yeah, you. so you understand like the, the feeling of a subway in general. It's, it's alluded to throughout the case. And it's to be known if you've never been on a subway. It's essentially a, a metal can hurtling through underground. It's and so it's, loud. It's so loud. It can be... It's incredibly convenient, but it is oppressive feeling. It's always packed. It always smells. It's always oh, it's humid. Hot. Yeah, um, vermin are around. Like little 
it's just kind of gross. It's pretty manic down there in like high times. It's claustrophobic. So it's a high stress area. And in New York City, hundreds of crimes occur on subways. And many, 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 many go unreported. And mm. this is 1980s. So it's it's even more so. So that's sort of like the scene we're in. The yeah. uh, news reports continue on. And based on eyewitnesses, there were four men three of which were armed with what seemed to be sharpened screwdrivers, which were in turn, by the way, found on the victims um, after police arrived. Uh, the four of them were shot, and beforehand they approached a, a man asking him for money, and he went into a marksman stance and gunned them down. And that is an exact quote from the news coverage shown in the documentary Jesus. I watched. Um, by the way, my sources for this are, of course, Wikipedia, um, an article on All Things Interesting by Alec, um, and a few things I watched. So the Trial by Media episode, uh, episode two, The Subway Vigilante on Netflix, a um, PIX11 show called Only in New York um, from 2019, and an episode of Inside Edition New York Gritty <laughs> from 2019. <laughs> oh, my God. And let me tell you, if you want to talk about production value, you, you ought to check those out. But they were super informative. Yeah. yeah, so in one of the documentaries, that's an exact quote from the news coverage at the time. So the coverage continues by saying that before the tall blonde suspect exited the train, he said to the conductor, they tried to rip me off. And, and ran off no one knew who this guy was and the report goes on to say that the four victims of the shooting although they are not described as victims they are either recovering or in critical condition in the hospital hang on i have a question before you continue i'm sorry yeah. so the man who shot these four guys says to the police he says to the conductor of the train oh and then he they let him run away yes he ran away oh my god they let him go, and he actually spoke to the conductor who stopped him because of what happened on his way leaving, and he said they tried to rip me off, and he was allowed to run free before the police got to the scene because there was no subway police back then. There was no subway patrol back then. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. So the, as they're showing all this, this stuff about the, this subway vigilante, um, the media continues showing that the public is largely applauding the suspect for his actions, looking at him as someone who is firing a gun on behalf of all of them in a way. Um, crime is rampant in the city, and it's being reported as though someone was being threatened on the subway, and he, no one was there to protect him, and he did what he had to do to protect himself. And people at large are applauding this um, right off the bat. Yeah. So police commissioner Benjamin Moore speaks out about the shooting, comparing it to the Charles Bronson movie Death Wish from the 70s, which will come to be part of one That's of the names. That's my favorite. Is it? I've never heard of it in my life. Oh. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> um, as I've seen clips of it, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen it. It looks like the kind of movie my dad would have. It's your typical action movie, you know, from What's that it period of time. Death Wish. Death Wish. Okay. It actually got two sequels. I don't know if it's any good, but... Um, it's Charles Bronson, so it was really, really popular, and it it was referenced right from the jump by the police commissioner, and it, it ended up being what the media latched onto, and it became part of his given name. So I think that's okay. why they're getting the uh, angel, the avenging angel. Oh, he was okay, okay. being called the Death Wish Vigilante. Oh. Yeah. So police released a sketch 
um, based on eyewitness accounts of the suspect. And while it looks incredibly generic, when you meet our suspect, you'll see it is it, it's pretty <laughs> spot on. Because he just I'm, has a very generic face. 100%. Um, at this time in New York City, the topic of public safety is on the forefront of everyone's mind, as I've mentioned. Yeah. And Yeah, it, uh, crime rates were really, really high in the 80s. And so um, out it was a, a big thing. Yeah. And so... Th- People were really divided on it, and I I took a point to look through all the reporting that I watched, all the videos, and all the people that were interviewed, because they showed a lot of like on-the-street interviews of people in public asking them um, what they thought about this, and uh-huh. I made a note of how they, how they reported it, that interviews that were talking to people about if they were in favor of this guy shooting these four boys on this, on this car— we had 11 people of cover, color interviewed that all were in favor of this white man shooting four black boys on this subway car. Damn. And 11 white people also saying it. And out of the people through the whole documentary that are not in favor, most of them are interviewed after the trial and all of everything happens. And you have seven people of color who are not in favor of the, what he did and only one white person speaking out specifically against it. Wow. And I only can imagine that this is cold from other, like, news reports for these, you know, programs we watch. I can only imagine what the media play was like back then. Yeah. So people are generally feeling as though taking action themselves is the only way to be safe. In um, the 70s, New York City lost over 500,000 jobs. A hundred, uh, Over a million people were on welfare. Rapes, burglaries, car theft, felony assaults had all doubled or tripled, and murders went from 681 to 1690 in one year. Wow. Um, Brochures started being distributed to tourists coming into New York City by airport that were titled Welcome to Fear City. It had a Grim Reaper on the cover, and it um, gave you survival tips to visit New York City, such as do not take the subway or walk alone after 6 p.m. And this is in the late 70s still, and this is happening in the early 80s. It's yeah. even wor- It's almost worse now as far as crime is concerned. Um, amid this like crazy culture of chaos, they set up a hotline to take any tips on finding the suspect of this crime. But instead, they get over 1,500 calls coming in to support the man instead. <laughs> they don't know who he is, but they, they are pledging their support to him. <sighs> Mayor Ed Koch is publicly outraged by the response to this man's actions, and in press conferences, he's quoted saying things like, No one can, with impunity, take the law into their own hands and give instant justice. We will not permit it. That's right, because it's like basically cowboys. Like you, A hundred percent. It hundred percent, and you. It is like, where are you? Yeah, there's a reason so we don't have Batman. <laughs> like he's, he, it, yeah, it's exactly. not how it works. It's not how it works. So about a week afterwards, on um, December thirty first, nineteen eighty four, Bernard Getz walks into a Concord, New Hampshire police station, turns himself in for the shooting, and confesses to the crime. Who is Bernard Getz? Sounds like a winner. Bernard Getz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's often referred to as Bernie. So Bernie Getz is a tall, thirty seven year old lanky white man who lives alone in the city worked as an electional electrical engineer but several of the reports is that he's electronics repairman that ran a business out of his apartment he is thin as a needle as britney spears would say he wears <laughs> it was in my head the minute you started to say thin as i was like oh my god britney spears okay i'm so glad i knew you'd appreciate that did you see her latest um to all my friends at the LGBTQ community, and everybody's like, I love how she says at the LGBTQ community as though it's like a a little like rec event. center that we all hang out yes. at. Yes. 
<laughs> it was made on one of the episodes of Queer Eye. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> see, he wears these like very large uh, glasses from like you expect from any nerdy looking person at that time. His uh, apartment, I imagine, is mostly off white with a lot of accents of beige and burnt sienna, um, mm-hmm. olive green. For sure, had that hanging like um, that hanging lamp over the like kitchenette table that was like the brown oh, wickery stained stuff. glassy look. No, 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 oh, like oh, the yes. brown wickery yes. one. Yeah. Yes, 100%. And a- a- every room was dimly lit with a brown carpet. So, well, I was going to say it, it was the 80s. So, like, everything was just still like the amber light bulbs that we had in the 70s. <sighs> yeah, yes. <laughs> oh, the 80s. So, when you take a look at this guy, he is the type of person who presents themselves very unassuming, non threatening, brainy. He dresses like he is auditioning for the role of a substitute teacher on his first day of work that's going to go into a class of third graders ready to just be, like, annihilated by them. He just looks like, pick on me. So he's, his picture is shown on the news, and he looks like this prime candidate for a crime. And it's no surprise to people that he was allegedly, um, that he was allegedly threatened on this subway. He says that he was mugged four years prior to this event for his leather jacket on a subway as well. When this happened, he was slammed into a plate glass window by two men, beaten, um, kicked in the knee, threatened, and thrown to the ground. One of the suspects is got away, but he was able to help identify the other suspect, who spent less time in custody than Bernie Gutz spent in the police station reporting the crime. And at the end of the day, the man who attacked him was only charged with a minor offense for ripping his clothing. Oh my gosh. Uh, I want to say side note, this is all like being said by police. So it, there are reports to corroborate this. They never mention the um, ethnic background or race of the original suspect in suspects. that crime. Okay. Yes. So I don't know how relevant it is to this, but that is something that is being that gets pushed a lot. Okay. He's very open about the. The fact that he had to obtain a gun. He went to go obtain a gun after this. He was denied a permit in the state of New York. He was told it would be irresponsible to give him a gun. It did not stop him. He went out and got a handgun anyway, and he carried it illegally everywhere he went by his own admission. His attitude towards his, attitude towards his actions are unapologetic, and the headline on the front page of the Daily News quotes him as saying, I'm sorry, but it had to be done. <laughs> and this is the closest thing to an apology he will ever issue through this whole thing. Jesus. He is referred to in the papers as the death wish suspect, the death wish vigilante, and language like suspect's life, a jigsaw puzzle, Can I pop ask, up all over the place. This is like a, a minor spoiler. Is this man still alive? Yes. Okay. And, it's, and is he in jail? Do you want to know now? No. Okay, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Continue the story. Okay. <laughs> so when asked, um, acquaintances say he was obsessed with cleaning up the neighborhood, obsessed with getting drugs off the street. And when he turns himself in, he gives a taped interview with an ADA and two detectives. And I want to quote some of the highlights from this interview. Before before you do that, I just need to say in response to the, like, he was obsessed with, you know, cleaning up the streets and whatever. That's not your job. Like, if you 100%. want that difference, get the job that makes that difference. Don't do this weird vigilante bullshit that people do, like George Zimmerman and... Mm-hmm shoot people who they think look suspicious absolutely not absolutely not and also your definition of cleaning up the neighborhood is not the 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 universally acceptable definition of cleaning up the neighborhood 100 percent not you want to clean up the neighborhood get a dustpan and a broom uh, anyway yep. 
So from this interview, and you can watch it, it's all uh, public record now. It wasn't released at the time until I'll tell you when, but this, his attitude, I will tell you, his attitude through the entire interview, he's, he's giving his taped confession, right? So he is upfront, he's ready to talk, he is unapologetic, and he's sarcastic, and he is like, it's pretty nasty to watch. Some of the things he says, he says, when I saw the smile on his face and the shine in his eye, I decided I was going to kill them all, murder them all, do anything. He says, I want to kill those. I wanted to kill those guys. I wanted to maim those guys. I wanted to make them suffer in every single way. By his own admission, he was asked for $5 from them. And he said, I've got $5 for each of you. He says, one boy tried um, to get away, and I'm sorry, but couldn't. They asked, they asked for it. Not, not give me all your money. Can I mm-hmm. have five dollars? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, one per- one of them asked for five dollars. He says one boy tried to get away, but could but couldn't get away, and that's when he quote unquote let him have it. After shooting, but he so he shoots all four of them once. After shooting at the fourth victim, but missing him, the victim tried to play dead. Guess was not fooled, Ugh. and he shot him again. Fuck. He said, and this is maybe the most chilling quote of the whole thing. He says, I was sure I had shot him. It was funny. I want to give an honest answer. I want to know if I missed. He's piecing it together out loud like he's solving like a simple riddle that was just posed to him. It's, it's cavalier. And then he says, he can't verify this because he was probably out of it by then. When he noticed he was, he was alive. And I said, you seem to be doing all right. Here's another. And then I shot him again. That victim was left in a coma and was paralyzed for the rest of his life. If I had more bullets, I would have shot him all again and again. My problem is, is that I ran out of bullets. I was going to gouge one of the guy's eyes out with my keys afterwards. The only reason I didn't, I didn't was because he changed his look. He compares himself to a rat being prodded at repeatedly, and it made him a vicious killer. And he said, and I quote, which is exactly what I was. Nearing the end of the interview, he's asked by the ADA, why these four? And his demeanor is so disgustingly sarcastic and passive-aggressive. And he says, oh, isn't that beautiful? You asked a question in an intellectual way. I didn't pick out these four. I never met those guys. So they ask him again, so why these four? And he says, I saw what they were intending to do with me. They were intending to play with me like a cat plays with a mouse. Um, I'm, so now let's talk about the victims. I tried to look up information about the victims from before this um, crime just to talk about them. And it, it is... There's not much, um, mm. which isn't surprising, unfortunately. But so less is known about the victims from before the shooting. Um, anything you find when you Google Bernie gets, you're flooded with articles um, from the 80s until today still about this guy, about who he is, what he did, why he did it, whether he's, was he right or wrong. When you look up any of the victims, yeah. the results are there. there's barely anything to find out. And anything you do find out is conjecture or criminal records yeah so at the time of the act at the time of the shooting um the four victims were 19 year old troy canty he was shot in the midsection he was the one who allegedly asked for five dollars which he does say he did um 19 year old james ransor he was shot once it hit him in the arm and chest 18 year old barry allen he was the one hit shot in the back on his way trying to escape and 19-year-old Daryl KB was the one who pretended to be wounded and was sh- uh, shot twice, who was shot at twice. The second one severed his spinal cord. Um, none of the victims 
die. They all survive. Um, that's the good news. Oh my god, I thought they were all dead. No, oh. they all survive. I was bur- I was burying the good news. Okay. So all the victims survive the crime, and only one of them is um, irreparably. His life will never be the same, unfortunately. I mean, none of them will be, but it, like you're you being the one who's been paralyzed. Yes, exactly. So Death Wish is all over the news. It's like being pushed on everybody. People are calling him it. They're proud of it. Other movies like this um, are coming out around this time as well, depicting vigilante justice and revenge told through the lens of white men. Mm-hmm. Most of these are are playing on the already falsely established but widely perceived notion that black people were dangerous. Yeah. And if you are white, you have to be especially careful at all times. Yep. Um, Charles Bronson in the movie plays an architect turned vigilante after the break-in of his home, brutal rape of his daughter, and murder of his wife. He's depicted carrying out justice on the streets um, on those who were dangerous and criminal and being largely celebrated by the public and the press. There's even a scene in the movie where he's alone on the subway and kills two men who are not black men, but kills two men before calmly walking off the car as if nothing happened. Movies like this, Falling Down, and the more recently, um, Joker. Released Joker. <laughs> oh my God. I literally was going to say, like, that's the fucking plot line to Joker, but I didn't think you were yes. going to reference that. Okay. No, it's, it's come. All of the articles that I found about this case more recently are all referencing Joker. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of talk about it, I guess, when it came out, a lot of comparisons about the subway scene, the setting of the film, the timing, the grittiness of the city, and the way the public reacts, the polarizing effect it had. Um, yeah. They all believe it's very, very largely based on this incident, which it, it must be when you continue hearing on. In Gets His Real Life, he shoots four black teenagers who do not have and who have never suggested that they had any firearms themselves. He admits to it, shows no remorse, appears on camera, smiling in handcuffs often. He is lauded as a hero. I think it's lauded. Merch. Lauded? I always say lauded. Yeah. Oopsie. He is lauded as a hero. Um, merch is being sold all over the city that says shut ride up. with bernie <laughs> did you say shout out no i said shut up oh no i swear to god yes it the merch says ride with bernie he gets him with his last name oh my fucking god way. what is wrong yep. with people it is who hollywood treatment oh it's my re- god it's so you could see how the show was really treating it how it was being portrayed you know yeah so reverend al sharpton says this attitude makes black young people look like sitting ducks of white paranoia and argues that when he put the gun in his pocket, Getz became the people he was fighting against and was just as, if not more, criminally minded than anyone else on that car. They interview a black woman on the subway, and she sums it up very simply in a sentence that should, I think, be really easy to understand. For from then till today, she's asked if she feels that that same way that young black men will be in danger now on the subway just by virtue of being there. And she says, I think this is a racist society. And I think that black people get treated one way and white people are treated another. It's pretty simple. How is this okay with us? So this comes up. Uh, this event got people talking about the issue. So Al Sharpton's all over the media and he's reminding everyone that four black young teenagers were shot by a white man and he is being celebrated as a hero while they're recovering in hospital beds. He held weekly rallies, picketed outside, gets his building, um, and he got the media's attention big time. So meanwhile, thousands of letters and checks are being written in to support Getz. Getz is, um, has a $50,000 bail and he, um, he, 
doesn't raise the money himself, but people are supporting him and sending money and checks. He raises enough money this way to, to surpass that bail, but he doesn't use it. He gets it all by himself. At the time, Daryl Cabey, he's the victim who is paralyzed. His family is receiving yeah. hordes of hate mail and threats. Oh. One that gets read aloud on the news and says that the man who wrote it is happy her son is paralyzed and then quotes, he needs to sit his black ass in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. I'm so sorry that the other three can't join him. What the fuck? End quote. Um, the lawyer who reads this, is his lawyer, um, describes the language in the other letters is far more overt in their racism. And this was like one of the most mild he could read. That was one air. of the gentler ones. Jesus Christ. Yes. So Getz says that he has black friends. Um, of and course he does. I would argue that, number one, that doesn't mean anything. Number yep. two, no, you don't. And number yeah. three, I don't think you have any friends. An interesting clip I saw showed a reporter ask Mayor Koch um, about New Yorkers feeling fear and going out at night because of that crime, because of the crime they might encounter. And he tells them that, he tells the guy, you're a good reporter and you should be careful because all you're doing is adding irrational fear. Um, it's interesting because I wonder how that was received at the time. Um, I don't know what the perception of Ed Koch was beyond me seeing him on the people's court. Yeah. But I imagine that a big... Per- um, section of society that was calling for protection and safety and were l- like calling this guy a hero hearing their mayor say this probably didn't go over well probably not in any event um transcripts are eventually leaked of the taped interview um and statements about shooting daryl Cabey again shock the nation and they are now damning guts in the press a little bit he's trying infuriating to to me that like that shocks people when everybody has been writing in all of this garbage the whole time like none of it i'm sorry none of it shocks people but yes now suddenly you're distancing from him exactly it's everyone at one moment is relating to him immediately Everyone is having this shared experience of I've been attacked. I've been assaulted on the subway by people. Yeah. I've been assaulted on the subway by human beings, people, maybe black, maybe white, maybe anything. And that fear that people have of their safety is like instantly triggered when they hear the story and then see that guy. Yep. And then when they see the four quote unquote suspects, like suspects of uh, what he's claiming, they believe a story, and they're be- and everyone else is believing it too. So it's really easy to latch on. Do you know not to excuse it, but when you see the interviews of these people, it is like it's a groupthink thing, right? Exactly, exactly. But as soon as it comes out that he shot gets a second, that he shot um gets shot KB a second time, and that he was shot in the back. Um, now him protecting himself on the subway is being called into question, and now people are starting to wonder. He gets is described often by lawyers as a loose cannon with the press, and they tried to keep him under wraps, but he couldn't help himself. And he goes on the news by himself and says, what we have now is anarchy. When people do violent crime and the criminal judicial system puts them back out on the street, that is anarchy. You're talking about yourself, himself. fucker. Oh my God. Exactly. Exactly. No crime was committed. No crime was committed against him. So then here's another layer the case takes on that they talk about in the show. Um, The NRA at this point is a very small outfit compared to what it is now. 
it's God. now decided to strike while the iron was hot and make Getz their poster boy to loosen restrictions on obtaining a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Of course. Um, they latch onto the fear in people that they see. They roll out ads and campaigns and press conferences using phrases like, this leaves you with a personal decision whether or not to protect yourself. Um, <laughs> they're um, putting out a lot of accessible, relatable slogans, talking about arming yourself, making it very normal and incredibly necessary. And they see the issue of race early on as an angle that they had to play correctly. So they get Roy Innes from the Congress of Racial Equality and he is interviewed supporting any man or woman who wants to defend themselves. So they find a black man who is in a position of um, power in an organization that's about racial equality. And they have him supporting them. And so he believes Bernard should have been able to obtain a permit. And as someone who was the victim of a mugging previously, and since he was not able to obtain that permit, he shouldn't be charged with anything. Oh, my God. Mayor Koch has a strict rule at this time that anyone who has a illegal firearm, you get one year in jail. No, there's he's like this is like one of his big things. Right during the now the trial is starting. So during the trial, everyone in America is following along as the jury watches the prosecution present their case against Getz, and the the defense at the same time tries to vilify the victims who he refers mm-hmm. to as thugs, and he, they are often referred to as thugs this throughout. Is- the entire thing it's so frustrating that this was 30 years ago and it's like literally the headlines that we're still seeing today Mm -hmm. the jury i want you to guess how many white people were on the 12 person jury i'm 12 right 10 10 okay 10 close enough 10 uh white person jury with at least two mugging victims at least two mugging victims on it as well they bear witness to a um recreation of events where the defense uses four black members of the Guardian Angels to represent the boys and a private investigator to represent Getz. They were instructed to, quote, act the way these guys act, act like thugs. Oh, my God. In trial by media, um, the leader of this group speaks out, admitting their role in this, of the, the Guardian Angels' role in this, um, and expressing that it's outrageous that the judge allowed this highly prejudicial um, dramatization and display in the courtroom. And as, as it was happening, the prosecution was, he said, screaming and objecting vehemently the whole time. God, but this the judge is, allows it. They really just like recreated this storyline minus like a few details. Yeah, yeah. And in, the, um, in saying this, so the guardian angels, I'm not going to get too much into who they are other than to what you need to know because I, through watching this, I don't, know how i necessarily feel about this um organization anymore okay to be honest okay but um because they admit their part in it the leader and he speaks about it as though it was the wrong thing to do but Uh they were doing the best they could with the information at the time Uh but then by the end of the documentary he's still in touch with bernie gets so uh, that's just okay go with that so the guardian angels for anyone who just wants to know a brief thing about them they're a volunteer organization they're still around they were formed in new york city in 1979 by curtis sliwa i might be mispronouncing that he is the gentleman who's interviewed in every single one of these videos i watched he is interviewed in multiple years Hmm. so he's he likes he likes it i've seen him before too he created this with the intent of patrolling the streets and subways which were unpatrolled at the time um, of new york city and carrying out unarmed crime prevention so they Mainly, we're teaching people to do citizen's arrests, to be aware, to be an extra person on the subway. 
when someone was alone and just to keep their eyes open, like a watchdog organization. Right. At first, they protested in support of the shooter, and they supported him and wanted amnesty for him throughout the entire trial. Their view of the crime on the streets, like, is highly shading them, you know, Mm -hmm. is highly, like, Mm -hmm. influencing them. And most of the the men in this organization that are shown are people of color. Yeah. And so that definitely helps the public opinion for the defense. Yeah. So he has them do this this ridiculous um, display. The prosecution then introduces the taped confession, where Getz sets the scene by saying he was disgusted with a project, and he was meeting up with friends to have a few drinks that night. And then he immediately contradicts what he's saying, saying he was quote-unquote lighthearted in his mood on the subway, which I would argue if you were disgusted with a project and going to blow some steam, you were not lighthearted. Yeah. In addition to these statements that I've already shared with you, he says that he snapped and said, I'm going to waste them. I'm going to waste them all. It was attempted cold. This is his words. This is a quote from him. It was attempted cold-blooded murder. I don't deny that. And if you're going to pass judgment on that, good. He goes on to say, and this part actually humanizes him to the jury. That he knows they're going to annihilate him over this. He says in the, in the, um, in the room with the ADA on this tape that he knows that they're going to annihilate, annihilate him over this with, uh, with this, this confession and that they have to do so because it would otherwise mean that people would have to carry gu- guns on the street and the city doesn't want to admit to that. He chastises the city for making him a monster and repeatedly damns local law enforcement and government officials for allowing the city to become overrun with dangerous criminals and leaving the people defenseless. He hopes this shines a light on the issue. So he's saying that the prosecution is prosecuting him, not for the fact that he killed these men, but because the government specifically doesn't want other people to be able to defend themselves. Yes, that is what he's saying. And he's not, I want to make it clear, he does not testify on trial. This is just the taped confession that he says this in. So he believed this from the jump. This was what he was saying when he went to New Hampshire that day. Okay. So that's his, that's his stance. um, That stuff was never released publicly, um, but now it's in trial. So they're playing the whole tape and this is when we first see this part. And in addition to this, this case ends up helping the NRA. They latched onto it big time and it helped them pass legislation successfully and helps the NRA go from a movement to earn momentum enough to become the organization and having the political power it it does today. Great. Witness after witness for the prosecution played into the defense's hand and many were, because they were all sticking to their statement from the original, their original eyewitness testimony saying that they heard the gunshots fired in quote unquote rapid succession which is very different than what Getz says. Right. Getz, in the, in the rec- recreation, you could see he points at one victim, points at another, points, shoots, walks over to the guy, shoots him again. Like, it's all very methodical. Yeah. The defense urges the jury to trust the um, multiple eyewitness accounts and not Getz's account of that, saying, you know, he was... They, they don't say how they explain his state and how they say to discount that, but they do. They The trial lasts seven weeks. The jury deliberates for four days, approximately. And Ram Thior, one of the victims of the shooting, says in an interview that he believes that he that um, Getz will at worst be found guilty of a lesser crime, at the very worst. Okay, but before you tell me what they say, can you tell me tell me the, the charge that they're putting up against him right now that they're deliberating? Yes. So he is being charged with 13 counts. Um, he's being charged with four counts of attempted murder, four counts okay. of 
I think it's felony assault and one count of possession of a firearm illegally. Okay, great. I mean, not great, but thank you for repeating that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. So that's Ramser's prediction. We're shown on the media, on the news coverage. Um, Guess is being released from the courtroom, and you could hear the cheers on the street as the verdict is announced to the press. He is found not guilty of all twelve <gasps> charges of attempted murder and assault. Are and you kidding only found me? Guilty of illegal possession of a firearm. Oh my god. In the courtroom, Getz is quoted as saying, "I'm happy. That's good." He's sentenced to a year Fucking in prison. Monster. He spends. He spends 250 days in prison. Wait, but if he during was, the sentence, oh, for the ir- firearm charge, right? Okay. Yes, yes. It's a one-year sentence that he serves 250 days in prison for. During his sentencing for this, he says, "This case is really more about the deterior- deterioration of society than it is about me." Yeah, and you are you are it. You are the yeah. deterioration of society. Yes. So here's the uh, here. I won't say there's much of a silver lining, but here's the only parts of it that. The aftermath. So the family of KB um, filed a civil suit against Getz in 1996 with the same lawyer, um, this time to a diverse black and Latino jury. Mm -hmm. Um, It's tried in the Bronx, and Getz is compelled to testify this time, which he did not have to do in 87. Oh, interesting. Here are some things that come out in this testimony. In a night, um, so this is in 1996 now. Remember, the trial was in 1987, the shooting was in 1984. In a 1980 building association meeting, Getz is quoted and compelled to speak this from his own mouth in front of the jury, saying, the only way to clean this street is to get rid of the N-word and the S-word. That was a quote from him on the record that he admits to from a meeting in 1980. Of his victims, he said in a quote, forget about their ever making a positive contribution to society. This is in 1996, all these years later. He says he considered them to be a guaranteed formula for disaster and misery, a situation. And he also is quoted saying that if Shirley Cabey had had an abortion instead, the mother of the man he paralyzed, it would probably be better than, that pr- than the present status quo. I... When the trial concludes, <laughs> the, pro- the prosecution um, wins a $43 million settlement against him. He files bankruptcy, gets files bankruptcy after the trial, but he is still a 73-year-old free man still living in, in New York City, and he has not paid a single dime to the family. He walks the streets, he takes the subway, he gives interviews. The prosecution states it did not expect a full payout, but they needed to send a message to, quote, white bigots with guns out there that this is, that this is, not acceptable and that sooner or later they will be held responsible if they can't keep it in their holster they want to make sure that they win this suit and send a message that if anybody out there who is a big wig and it has all the money in the world to defend themselves that you can't do this because we will bankrupt you that's why they shot for the 43 million dollar settlement they wanted enough money where it would make a difference in someone's pocket in the long run got it after his release he after gets his release He eventually runs for public office multiple times, including, sure does, including mayor and public advocate. He loses each time. Good. Um, The current public advocate for New York City, just to give a little perspective um, about where we are versus where we were, is, uh, I might be mispronouncing this person's name, so I apologize, but it's Jumaine Williams. Okay. That's J-U-M-A-A-N-E. Um, he's interviewed in, in these um, to get his perspective of things now as he grew up 
in New York City and was a child when this was happening. Mm -hmm. When these four teenagers were shot in 1984, he was a little kid growing up in the New York public school system. Mm -hmm. And he remembers the powerful impact this had on his life. And he says that it's hard to imagine race did not play into the shooting Mm -hmm. um, and points out that the value of black life is simply not that high in American society. He is a, a black man. And so... I just think it's interesting that when we see images of him, who is the current public defender or public advocate for New York City, we have a black man who's leading a pride march and behind him in the footage are individuals of every race and gender marching behind him with rainbow flags and gets ran for this office and lost. And this is who is there in his place. Yeah. So it's hopeful. Um, it's hopeful. Yeah. Wow. So just and also, I didn't really know what um what that role was, the public advocate. So yeah. just really quickly, you're the first in line to succeed the mayor. You have a Ooh. really um, important position in putting people in office um, on, on multiple boards that are really important for financials for the city. And you are also serving as a direct, this is from Wikipedia, this part, you serve as a direct link between electoral and city government effectively acting as a watchdog for New Yorkers. Wow. So I'm happy that this is the attitude of the person who is doing this. He's sitting in the interview, holding his head high, and he's wearing a stay woke pin and a Black Lives Matter resist <laughs> pin. And it's beautiful yeah um at the end of this we have steve zeidman a cuny um, law professor quoted saying i think if a bernie Getz situation happened tomorrow odds are you'd see the same break across new york city maybe not as extreme but there would ultimately still be the same difference al sharpton says he doesn't believe it would shake out in the same way today automatically but while quote we're not where we need to be we're further than we were yeah. Citizens, both black and white, wondered afterwards I if hope it was that's safe true. for either I of mean, them to ride the subways. Oh, I, I, me too. I mean, as I was writing this and watching these things repeatedly, my heart was just beating so fast in my chest. It just feels so like I can't even begin to um, put myself in any perspective to understand this. So now after in the aftermath, black people are afraid to ride the subway because they believe that they are being targeted as criminals now and that white people are now emblazoned to take action against, or all people, but white people are, are emblazoned to take action against somebody in the very worst way possible and walk away a hero. Yep. Guess is asked in an interview um, after he's trying to get back to normal life. Him, they, they have interviews with the jury and Getz trying to get back to normal life. And he's asked if he has any words for 19-year-old Daryl Cabey, who is now in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the waist down, and has suffered permanent brain damage for the rest of his life. And he expresses sympathy for his mother, who he feels is a victim, and he feels sorry for in this. Just her. Just her. He's asked in a later interview if they got what they deserved, and he says, that's a very complicated question. I think they were playing a very dangerous game, and they paid the price. Of being, they were playing a very dangerous game, a game of being alive. Like, of standing. Of sitting right. and standing. Yep. Okay, and by the way, only in, even in the trial, only one of them was said to even have asked him for the $5. Right. The others were just black men around him. Right. No one wielded a weapon. Um, they're, they're asked why they have the screwdrivers, and um, I forget which victim. I think it was Ramsior. He lets it loose that um, they were, in fact, on their way to an arcade to rob the arcade. Of, from the, um, they were going to bust open and get co- coins out of the arcade machines, which they had done yeah. before. So they were on their way to commit a crime, which is in the news from the very beginning. 
sure. um, of course, and and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. He wasn't defending those fucking video right. game machines. That shouldn't fucking matter. Not at all. And his only thing he said was a gleam in the person's eye. He's quoted in a 2017 interview expressing that he does not regret the shooting still. He has regrets in his life. 2017, he's on an, a radio interview or a podcast interview, I heard. Um, in, in That's Im- the And here he is, everybody. Netflix thing. Yes, and he doesn't have any regrets uh, for this. He has regrets and some f- blunders in his life. This is not one of them. 2017. Mark Baker gets his attorney, tells us in the Inside Edition episode that it's much easier to say how something should have gone when you aren't in the courtroom being fed all this evidence and testimony um, and then going on that subway every day afterwards trying to defend the jurors. The lawyer, by the way, is also quoted saying race was not an issue at all here and still stands by that. His his lawyer. Right. Yeah. The prosecutor, um, Ron Kuby, says he wasn't surprised that he lost the original case because there was a white angry mob mentality happening at the time. And when two of the white jurors are interviewed later on, they are so passionate in the, in the interview, so passionate when they're telling reporters that they never for one single moment considered race, even for a second in the, in the jury room for the original trial. And they are passionate. They're, they're so, they look like they must've been asked the question and got pissed. That's how they're acting. The public was incredibly polarized. Protests, demonstrations abounded. So where are they today? Today, Bernard Goetz is in his 70s, um, still living in New York. Uh, According to New York Post, he is a... This is the most recent interview that happened with uh, Bernard Goetz. It was recently, like a couple weeks ago. Oh, my God. Are you ready? You don't want to know what the article is about? (sighs) Bernard Goetz is a quarantine denier. Of course. What a shock. He's pictured, yep, he's pictured in the article outside wearing no mask, feeding squirrels, joyfully strolling around. When reached for comment after this for the article, he confirmed that he believes the coronavirus outbreak is quote-unquote bullshit and quote-unquote most everybody's brainwashed about that. He has not been and has no plans to wear a mask or adhere to social distancing protocol whatsoever. So this man is a delight still to this day, walking free on the streets, a summer wind. He is just blowing around a breath of fresh air. Now, meanwhile, the victims of this crime have not had the same fate. Um, It was hard to find information past a certain year on some of them because, like I said, when you search for the victims' lives, you get largely criminal records. Sure, and I also imagine, like, they probably don't really enjoy talking about the time that they were shot no. for the last 30-some-odd years. So they probably are like, can no. I just have a normal life at some point? Yes. Any articles I could find that were quoting people that actually knew the boys and talking to them and not just talking about the criminal records were just saying that most of them wanted to get back to their everyday life after this was over and had an incredibly hard time doing so. Um, the most tragic of—it's hard to weigh tragedy, but the most tragic— recent um, occurrence was James Rumsior. He was the second gentleman who was shot. He was found dead in 2011 on the anniversary of the subway shooting. No. In a motel room. What? Mm -hmm. He was 45 years old. He had just finished a sentence um, for an unrelated charge that got him out in 2010. And the following Uh year on the anniversary of the subway shooting, um, he was found dead in a hotel room from an overdose on prescription pills he had scratched the label off and thrown the bottle away so they couldn't identify it. The pills. Oh, um, so he intentionally, he, he completed suicide. That is what is, 
Yeah, so it, it was being investigated uh, as an accidental overdose or possible suicide. They make a lot of references to the crime he committed um, in the articles. Um, I, I do think it's important to say this about him, just to give a full story. They're, all of the four boys did have a criminal record of some sort. Three of them, um, which would be Alan, KB, and um, Canty, they had minor, minor um, things on their record. It was uh, like criminal mischief type stuff, like graffiti. Yeah. James Remsior was um, immediately after the trial ended f- for Bernard Getz. He was already incarcerated for a crime where he was sus- he was found guilty of rape um, and kidnapping and assault on an 18 year old girl. So mm. he was convicted of this crime and did go to jail and served a sentence that lasted him to 2010 for that charge. So he was someone who had a record, which they do, re- they do reference on the show. And I'm sure that that's kind of what they're getting at is that, you know, one of the boys did have a, a violent record. Well, but it's like, but Getz didn't know that. And he had no way no. of knowing that. And even if he knew that, that doesn't give you the license to shoot people. Like, you know, he could, that, that man could have grown up to cure cancer and you don't know that. And so yeah, the idea that you get to decide that somebody else's life is unacceptable. That's why we have, in theory, a justice system that is supposed to decide what to do with folks who, you know, violate our our standards or our norms or our laws. Like you don't get to decide that individually in the moment with your finger on a trigger. Right. And I'm sorry, if you are walking onto a subway and you're carrying a concealed weapon illegally, you're carrying a concealed handgun illegally, and you're doing so because you are afraid, because you were mugged before, I would argue you have no right to be carrying that gun on a subway. Nope. You are exactly the person who shouldn't be. And in the interviews, by the way, that happened along the way with... um, Whenever they, on any of the um, documentaries I watched that focus on parts about the NRA part about this, anyone who's talking about it there says that, you know, he should have, because of that mugging, been a prime candidate to get that uh, permit. And I just think that is such a backwards thought. Like, how do you think yeah. that based on that? I, but the point of it is, though, is he was denied a permit on that, on that grounds and given a gun anyway. He got a handgun anyway, so yeah. it doesn't matter. Because you can just so, get one around any corner. Exactly. So that's the tragic um, end for James Rensseur. Barry Allen um, ended up, the only thing you could find about him is that he served about three and a half years in the early 90s for stealing $54 from an old man. Three and a half years he served in jail for that. The idea that somebody's life is worth $54 or three years of their mm-hmm. life. like you. Um, <sighs> the idea that a man shot all four of them called himself a monster and served a hundred and something days in jail or t- uh, less than four months in jail um, and walks free to this day. And that this man served three and a half years in jail for stealing $54 from a man. And yeah. that this, this kid was a, was known to be the victim of this crime. And that didn't color his experience to anyone at all. It still yeah. made people believe, no, justice is served. And in that in that way, we don't know what happened to him afterwards. Um, he was one of the boys who really didn't want to be 
associate with this anymore. Yeah. Um, in, in an article written by one of the lawyers for Troy Canty, they say that he entered drug rehabilitation voluntarily after the trial. He completed the program in the early 90s and had planned on attending culinary school afterwards. And that's the last anyone has heard from him. Oh, I hope he did. I hope so, too. And the article is really beautiful. I, I didn't um, cite it because I didn't use much of the information besides that sentence. But if you search for Troy Canty, one of the only beautiful things you could find is a letter written by someone on his um, on the prosecution team that stayed in touch with him until he finished his treatment. Um, and he says, like, mm. I really hope that he's doing everything he hopes for. And, you know, I hope that he's living a life that he wants. It's really nice. And so I just wanted to end this whole thing with a quote from Al Sharpton that I think is very relevant and that kind of puts a good pin on this and says, he says, as you go through life, you see a lot of what risk you see a lot of what was risky or unpopular become accepted. That's what movements do. You shift the argument. But some people have to take the risk to change the conversation. Now the fact that we have made some progress is encouraging. The fact that we haven't arrived is what energizes us to keep going. And that is all I have for the yeah. 1984 subway shooting of Troy wow. Canty, James Ramsour, Barry Allen, and Daryl Katie. Wow, that's unbelievable. I Pretty heavy. Yeah, I mean... I'm... Yeah, I when you were describing the episode, I just could not wait for you to hear how crazy the fiction yeah. is... The, the craziest fictional parts that you might have thought could not possibly have happened and how they actually were facts. Yeah. It's so interesting, too, how, like, for TV, as though that story isn't, like, as though Getz isn't sympathetic enough of a character in Law & Order. They had to make it a, a woman who, and they had to make it about sexual assault. And there were some really bizarre moments in the episode, too, where I felt like, Detective Green and ADA Robinette, who were the only two Black characters on the show, they were weirdly tasked with, like, pulling the conversation away from race in a very, like, it was, the, like, I, I have a hard time imagining that an, a Black ADA or a Black public defender would be more, would be, like, dismissive of the racial aspects of this crime in the way that they made their characters on the show that is very, very strange. And like, and the fact that the whole plot line centered around Cynthia Nixon's character, like, is she a victim or is she just, and didn't focus on like, were these four boys victims? Like the fact that that wasn't the storyline, that it was about her, I think is just so indicative of like how six years later, nothing had really changed about the conversation, that it was still sort of valorizing this person and that Cynthia Nixon got away at the end of the episode, like basically scot-free is, is in a way like not, not furthering the conversation of what had happened in these 1984 subway shootings, right? Like they didn't take a moment to say like, Oh, Hey, you know, maybe this was actually really fucked up. They like distorted the conversation in a way that, that feels um, like intentionally willfully disregarding what's going on in this in this incident yeah and i just think like in all of the reporting that i watched on this the term victim for the four boys is the word that is used the least to describe them the absolute least i'm sure um it is largely all about bernie gets and whether he was right or wrong for what he was doing and very little about the victim had 
um, Daryl Cavey not been paralyzed by this, I don't think it would have gotten even a, a, a single drop of sympathy from people. Yeah. It was Probably not. primarily him that they were de- depending on him to drive home to people like, look how serious this was. This is irreparable damage. He shot to kill. And even from the very beginning where they quote saying that he shot like a, in a marksman-like stance and gunned them down, that's eyewitness testimony went into a marksman stance and gunned them down. That is not someone who's protecting themselves. Right, you're, that's not that's not a a survival reaction unless you are highly 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 trained and like have been through those kinds of situations before. That's not your response in the moment of fear. And No. And And I also just thought of this too. Like they talk a lot about how um and it's funny cuz we talked about it. They talked a lot about um the, the movie is coming out around this time and the Death Wish thing, right? And yeah. uh, like falling down and this vigilante uh, character that was shown a lot. And we were talking about how this show, Law and Order, has like all these like punchy lines, you know, these like one-liners, like zing, zap, yeah. you know what I mean? And I think it's really, I just picked this up. When he tells his testimony and the most damning part of it for him is when he says that he looked at um, the fourth person he shot and saw that he was still moving and said, you seem to be doing all right. Here's another. That's not a fear response. No. And that is like one of those type of lines. It almost sounds like he's mimicking what he would hear like a dirty Harry say. You yep. seem all right. Have another. Boom. Shots yeah. shoots him. And it's almost like, why did he reveal that detail? Because he even said, before he said that detail, he can't verify this because he was probably out of it by then. And so I wonder if he even said that. I wonder if he even really said that or just thought it, it was cool, thought it was cool yeah. and made him like galvanized, him, like lionized him in some way. Like I thought, I think he thought this is my line. My moment. Do you know what yep. I mean? It wasn't necessary and it was the most damning thing. And it's the most damning thing of, of the whole testimony for him. And it just speaks to what his lawyer said that he could not help himself. And what yeah. we see happen on, like, a lot of these, like, Law & Order episodes, spoiler alert, in, like, later seasons, like, where the the prosecution's able to sort of use verbal trickery to get the um, defendant to confess something in the moment. Mm-hmm. But it's true. People with this kind of personality can't help themselves, you know? No. Yeah. Wow. And it's so scary to think, too. Like, I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful that all of those men or boys, I forget what their age was, that they lived. But... Mm-hmm. Because because imagine what he, what story he would have been able to tell if they hadn't lived. Imagine what that story would have looked like that he exactly. would have spun. And it would have been so horrifying. And it would have been very easily accepted by the public based on how they accepted this. Yep. Great job, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks everyone out there for listening. Please like us and subscribe and rate and review because all those things help other people who would like this show find this show. So if you like this show, help other people like this show. Yes, Because the more people who like this show, the more likely that we will keep making uh, be able to keep doing it forever. Yes. And uh, send us any informa- anything you want to say. If you hear anything we report back on this episode or further episodes that doesn't seem accurate, you think we missed something really important, or you have anything to add, you can send us an email. Um you can send that email to rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. You know what would be cool? Yeah. I would love it if people who 
like really remember these incidents like whatever the true crime the show is based off of i would love for people to write in with like their memories of how it oh. happened and like how it differed from the show and things like that that would be fun yeah that's really that's great yeah because i actually remember hearing about this case but just because i lived over there but i wasn't you know alive through it you know but it, it's something that people always talked about whenever you watch like crime lists and stuff like that so i'm sure like even my older siblings and uh like cousins would would have their own experience with this so maybe i'll reach out to some of them for our first uh well, tell them to write us an email all right uh goodbye goodbye everybody thanks again